welcome back listeners it's just been a few days since i posted episode number nine and i decided to jump back on the mic here and put out an episode um right after i had launched episode nine us versus them and other musings i came across an article on emmett till and in the article it stated it would have been his 79th birthday on July 5th and so I was remiss to not include him in the episode that I published anyway I decided I would go ahead and uh, do a brief um, podcast on Emmett Till Um, some of you may have heard his name I grew up never knowing anything about Emmett Till. Um, I think it was probably college when I'd first uh, learned a little bit about his story. And um, I think it was back in 2005, 2004, a documentary had come out uh, in regards to uh, his murder. And they were showing uh, the film at uh, the Tower Theater here in Fresno. And so I went to go watch the film and I was just horrified um, by uh, what had happened to this young boy, you know, having read about it and then listening to the stories of the people who were there, his family members, his mother, hearing his mother talk is just absolutely heartbreaking. So I've tried my best over the years to... um, at least once a semester to talk a little bit about Emmett Till and uh, you're going to be able to see hopefully uh, some similarities between Emmett Till and, and his murder and the, the murder of George Floyd. So the murder of Emmett Till happened in August 28th, 1955. He was uh, 14 years old. Apparently he had whistled at a white woman in Mississippi, which is something you just don't do. I'm not so sure you even do it today. Um, he was born, raised in Chicago, lived there with his mother. He was going to visit his grandparents who lived in Mississippi. And apparently he again whistled at a white woman. This white woman uh, told her husband and her husband and another white man uh, kidnapped Emmett. Uh, that evening told the grandparents that they'd bring him back they were going to give him a beating and of course he never returned his body was discovered um, days later and apparently he um, was beaten and killed and then tied to some type of industrial fan I believe and They tied his body up in bob wire to this industrial fan and they tried to sink his body. And anyway, his body was discovered. Thankfully, he was beaten so badly they couldn't even recognize him, but he was wearing a ring with his initials on it. And that's how they were able to identify his body. So the sheriff in the town where he was killed attempted to do a quick burial told the family members, hey, you guys come on to the church and we're going to bury his body. And his mother um, 
back in Chicago, was able to contact people, was able to stop the funeral, and was able to get the body returned back to Chicago, where she insisted on seeing his body. And upon opening up the the casket, she what she saw was absolutely horrifying. Horrified the nation, in fact, much in the same way that the murder of George Floyd horrified many. When she saw his face, one of his eyes were missing. The other eye was kind of dangling from his face. He was beaten so badly that his head had swelled up to twice the size of a typical human head. Apparently, somebody had put an axe to the top of his head. Um, They cut off his private parts. And apparently they shot, shot him in the head as well. She said that you could see um, a bullet wound on one side of his head and you could see the hole on the other side of the head. So I know I'm getting kind of graphic here, but that was kind of the point. You know, this is way before um, the 24-hour news cycle. This is before social media, the internet, and so information doesn't travel very far. And the way people got information back then was through reading the newspaper. Uh, But she wanted people to know. She wanted people to know what they did to him. She wanted people to know about the violence experienced by African Americans in this country. And so she had an open casket and she allowed all the, um, the folks in Chicago who wanted to come to the funeral to come and to see him. She wanted the world to see what was done to her son, to see his bloated, mutilated body. She wanted focus on the violence and the racism and the barbarism of lynching in this country. And his murder sparked a nationwide rebellion to a certain extent. Now, the civil rights movement had already taken off to a degree, but the murder of Emmett Till was certainly a catalyst for that movement. Now let's talk about justice for Emmett Till. The two men who killed him, the husband of the woman that he insulted, arrested and they were tried by an all white jury Medgar Evers and others from the NAACP attempted to go to Mississippi well they didn't attempt they went to Mississippi investigated his murder to help find anybody who would be willing to come and testify against these men the grandfather bravely stood up in court and testified against these two men who had kidnapped 
his grandson. Now, again, this is, this is very taboo at the time. Again, in this country, there are numerous laws throughout, you know, the beginning of, the, of our, our nation prohibiting people of color from testifying against white folks, whether it's the Chinese or Native Americans here in California. Some of the first laws that are passed when California becomes a state prohibit Native people from testifying against white people. In the South, it's just simply taboo, right, to take the stand. You could lose your life. A family member, you could, your house could be firebombed. Um, and of course, this, this old timer was brave enough to do it, along with a few others. Nevertheless, this all-white jury came back with a not guilty verdict. And Emmett Till's mother went to Mississippi for the trial and she stated in this documentary that she left before the verdict was even read. And she knew. She just knew the way the trial had gone. She knew they were going to bring back a not guilty verdict. And so she just said, she said that she told everybody, she says, I'm leaving. And they said, well, why? We haven't even had the, got the verdict yet. She's like, I already know what, what the verdict is. Now, this is obviously a absolutely horrific injustice. Uh, but at, to add, you know, insult to injury, the two men, um, I think it was in 1956, in um, Look magazine, uh, they were interviewed and they admitted to killing him. They admitted to killing him. But because of double, double jeopardy, course they um, could not be tried for his murder now there were also uh, kidnapping charges that uh, they um, wanted to bring up against the two men who these two animals who had murdered Emmett Till and uh, Mississippi refused to try them even for kidnapping I think the sentence for kidnapping was up to 10 years. So they could have faced up to 10 years if uh, tried and convicted of kidnapping, but they never tried him. So there was never any justice for Emmett Till. Unfortunately, sadly, um, his murderers and any other accomplices, which there are many who argue there were more than a few accomplices, all went free. Now, as I was saying, this barbaric event, this, bar this tragedy, this killing, this, this murder of Emmett Till sparked a nationwide rebellion. From there, you see the Montgomery bus boycott. I think that starts in December of 1955, so literally a few months after he's murdered. Um, 
eventually you see the U.S. Supreme Court decision that ends segregation. That's in 1955. Uh, eventually, 1964, um, you get the civil rights legislation, you know, Voting Rights Act. Um, get the Fair Housing Act and you get all these different uh, legislative bills that are passed attempting to end uh, this legacy of racism, institutionalized racism, which went on for, again, a hundred years after slavery had ended. And so I do see a couple of parallels between uh, the killing of Emmett Till and the murder of George Floyd, of course, uh, just because you end a jury um, aspects of racism, legalized racism, which some of these legislations in fact did, racism continued. Um, just because you create laws that prohibit people from engaging in, in, engaging in racist activities doesn't mean that racism just suddenly disappeared. In the 1970s, you see kind of the birth of the prison industrial complex, the war on drugs, Reaganomics. You see these massive changes to our economy, and you see the gap between the rich and, and poor begin to really expand during that, that period from 1970 all the way to our present day. So, you know, 50 years of, you know, ongoing racial oppression, um... I think one of the main issues that I can see, one of the most important issues that we just haven't dealt with, is just this history, this long history, this long um, story of racial injustice here in the United States. I mean, it's embedded into the American fabric. And we just haven't dealt with it. So our day of reckoning really never came. And here we are some 50 years later, um, still dealing with the issue of race. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois said the problem of the color line be the most important issue of the 20th century and here we are in the 21st century and it appears the problem of the color line hasn't been solved and I can only imagine if George Floyd murder the person who murdered George Floyd and the accomplices if those individuals are allowed to go free, I could only imagine what the outrage will be. Anyway, we're living in really wild times, and I, I think that it's important to tell these stories. There's some people who have told me, I was like, well, you know, people need to get over it. You keep talking about it. You keep, you know, dwelling on it. You, know, you can't move past it. No. The problem is, is that we've never dealt with it. It's still ongoing. Institutionalized racism, 
and all the problems that come with racism. The biggest problem that I see, of course, the, the inequality that comes with it. I mean, that's what racism is all about. It's about inequality. It's about justifying inequality until we grapple with the topic of race and come to grips with it. This country is never going to be completely free to move forward. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that I see here in, in the United States. There's never been a day of reckoning when it comes to race. And I understand if the status quo works for you. And if you're doing fine, you may not really want to deal with this. It might be, well, this is a black thing. Oh, those native people, they got a problem with this and that over there. I don't know. It's not my thing. No, this belongs to all of us. This is our country. It's up to us to fix it together. I want to talk a little bit about white guilt. That doesn't do us any good. Over the years, I've had so many white people come to me, wow, I feel so ashamed to be white. And I'm like, hey, that doesn't, that doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do me any good for you to be ashamed. I don't go home feeling good about that. I don't know what white folks think when you tell us that. Do you think we're just going to walk, go home, say, oh, I had a white person tell me how guilty they feel. Man, it makes me feel so much better to know that there's white folks out there that are ashamed and feel guilty. You know, white guilt and white shame doesn't get us anywhere. What will get us somewhere is, is action, real change for us to, to at least come to the agreement that racial injustice in this society is real, has always been real. We have to come to that agreement. If we can't, then we're never going to be able to completely move forward. And we're going to repeat this cycle again. And I've said it before, there is a backlash coming. And I implore all, all of you out there who care about these issues, we can't just let these this topic here just slowly fade away. You know, it's hard. You know, I I was watching some of the news reports in regards to some of the ongoing protests and some of the things that we're seeing still around this country. It's hard to see. But until we come to terms with the fact that racism is real, that it's embedded into the social fabric of our nation, and that it has done incredible amounts of damage to millions of people, we can never ever move forward. So we have to start there. And if we can't, and again, if we just stay in our little bubble because it's comfortable there, I don't care if you're on the left or on the right or in the middle, where you're at, if you just stay where, if you're just comfortable there, we're not going to be able to solve this problem. But if we could all agree that there is a problem, 
could at least come to terms with that. I think there, there's definitely hope. I know that some of you don't like what you see on, on, on TV, what you see in social media with the protests and, you know, you see all these really violent images of protesters and looters and, you know, it feeds into your own biased feelings. You know, white folks need to knock it off. You really do. You know, it bothers the hell out of me when, you know, these topics come up and you hear these people. Immediately, they want to deflect. Well, what about black-on-black crime? It's frustrating. You don't think the black community doesn't care about black-on-black crime. You don't think that there's an organization after organization who's been out there protesting and attempting to do everything they can do to protect their own communities from violence. The media doesn't report any of that. I mean, the assumption is, I guess, I guess that, you know, black people, this is how I take it when people say that. The assumption is that, you know, black folks just don't care about their communities. They just don't care about, you know, what happens to their own. Because look how they treat each other. You know, it's what some people call polite racism. Well, I'm just asking a question because, you know, you got these, you know, you see black on black crime. It's it's a big problem. Uh, I'm in the future. I'm going to do an episode on, on black on black. I'm going to break that bullshit myth down it's coming I mean I think I'm gonna have to put a little more thought into that as opposed to just speak off the cuff but I feel like I need to do an episode on that because that comes up that's immediately one of the first go-to's it's like it's like the ace up the sleeve well, what about black on black crime yeah people just need to shut the fuck up with that it's just, it's disgusting. Just showing your own damn ignorance. So, if we can start there, if we can start with, yes, there's a problem. Yes, there's always been a problem. There's been incredible injustice in this country, and that it's all of our responsibility that some of us have many freedoms and liberties that we inherited that we didn't earn from any of our hard work, that we simply inherited those freedoms and liberties. And if you do have freedoms and liberties that other people don't have, it's your fucking job to get out there and do something to ensure that we all do. Can't just stay in our own little comfortable group, our own little comfortable clan, and individualize everything. Say, well, if these people would just work a little harder, if they drank less and these kids didn't go out there engaging, engage in gang activity and whatever nonsense they're involved in, you know, they could have a good life. You know, this, these types of attitudes just need to 
disappear. They need to go away. Now, they're just it's an easy way to deflect from the real issues that are facing all of us, not even just black people or people of color, even white folks. Just the gap between the rich and the poor, the fact that it's so hard for so many people in this country to make it now. so so difficult that you have you know people out here on the right screaming about socialism well you got these young Marxists out there who are wanting to turn our society into a socialist society and you got you know the Trump administration and anybody any fool on the right you know knows pull the socialism card they they accuse us of pulling the race card well there's also the the commie card and the socialist card that's all you gotta do socialist communist well let me let you in on just a uh, you know just a a little fact here that there already is socialism in this country socialism already exists exists for the rich You know, all these tax breaks and these subsidies, billions and billions of tax dollars, our money, our, our hard-earned money, that goes to corporations. And some might say, well, they create jobs. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of scientific evidence. I know some people don't like that. They don't like science. There's a lot of data that shows that, you know, many of these corporations who are getting billions of dollars in tax breaks aren't creating jobs they're just simply not they're creating wealth creating wealth for themselves and they're creating wealth for their families for their friends but you all you have to do is just look at the numbers the inequality of today the difficulty is just to buy a home today. Working class people and lower middle class people over 50 years ago could own a home. I, I talked about this in my last podcast. My parents, you know, that last generation of working class people were able to have something. It's almost impossible today. And it's really sad and unfortunate that you know, we have, you know, people out there who, you know, they're so critical to rush to judgment about, you know, rush to judgment against these young kids who are using a, a you know, sociological tool called Marxism to attack a system that is incredibly unfair. disappoints me when I hear people talk about socialism. I'm just like, are you kidding me? The bank bailouts, 2008. It's one of the largest socialist programs. You don't think that 
these young kids out there, these young, you know, so-called Marxists, these postmodern <laughs> neo-Marxists, as uh, Jordan Peterson calls them. You don't think they don't know this? So there already is social. There's socialism for the rich. And we have other aspects of socialism as well. Again, and I think I've mentioned this before, I'm not a socialist. I'm not a communist. I don't label myself any of these things. But when people come at me with all oh, these kids, they want social. They don't know what socialism is. I'm like, you don't either, fool. <laughs> so, anyway, to kind of bring this back, to circle back to Emmett Till, um, it's important that these stories are told. It's important that we remember our history, that we learn our history, that we understand the past. If we don't, I know it's a cliche, but we're doomed to repeat it like we have generation after generation. Let's not do it again. Let's make this change happen now. It starts with all of us. It starts with you. It starts with me. If you're capable and you're able, then it's your responsibility. I'll leave it with that.